Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Alex Thomas and in a bonus edition of the podcast we are taking a break from analysing the ins and outs of Westminster politics and travelling the world to take a closer look at a country that is often held up as a poster child for government reform, New Zealand. It's often suggested that the UK could learn a lot from our friends in New Zealand when it comes to how government works. I've lost count of the number of times people have argued we need a UK beehive gathering all ministers together in one building, but more on that later. Today, the plan is to get beyond the beehive. We'll look at the history of public service reform in New Zealand. What have their governments done differently? How has this changed things, if at all? And what should we learn to improve government reform here in the UK? To help answer these questions and more, I am glad to be joined in the studio by Professor Rodney Scott, who is Chief Policy Advisor to the New Zealand Public Service Commission and was closely involved in New Zealand's public service reforms and has patiently explained them to us at the IFG on more than one occasion. In fact, he has literally written the book on the topic, two in fact, and we will get a plug in later, Rodney, don't worry. Uh, Rodney, welcome to the IFG. You're in the UK for a few months as part of work you're doing with Cambridge University's Bennett Institute of Public Policy. How are you enjoying your time here? Oh, it's been great so far. Um, been learning a lot, been talking to lots of different people, uh, both from the UK and around Europe. Uh, it's been a long time now of being stuck in New Zealand and not having the chance to learn from other countries. So it's good to be out and, and engaging in the world again. And you managed to navigate the uh, horses at, uh, uh, that prevented your the uh, Queen's birthday, uh, Trooping the Colour horses that uh, nearly prevented you getting to IFG Towers. So well done on that. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm also joined by the IFG's Director of Research, Emma Norris. Emma, hello. Hi, Alex. And senior researcher Rhys Klein, who keeps a close eye on government reform. Rhys, hello. Hi, Alex. So to begin with, Rodney, I'll put you on the spot and ask you to give us a potted history of government reform in New Zealand. What is the two minute version to set the scene for us? Sure. So uh, the New Zealand government um, and, and public service institutions have been reformed continually over the last 115 years or so. But the easiest way to explain it is the four phases that that correlate with the four different uh, primary legislation that we've had in that time. So in 1912, the first Public Service Act was formed and uh, really inspired by some some UK work, inspired by the Northcote Trevelyan in 1854 and, and Westminster and Whitehall models in general, um, focused on trying to reduce corruption and and ensure that uh, people are treated consistently and fairly by reducing discretion for frontline employees and uh, dividing labour into standard operating procedures. Then, sixty-two, uh, we had a new legislation, the State Services Act, which uh, modernised employment practices and also changed the way we dealt with arms-length bodies. And then, in nineteen eighty-eight, was the change that uh, kind of put New Zealand on the map, which was the State Sector Act of nineteen eighty-eight and then the Public Finance Act of nineteen eighty-nine which followed what's now been described around the world as as the New Zealand model or new public management. And that was based on uh, maximizing autonomy for civil servants in exchange for accountability for the outputs that they produced. And so ministers entered into a kind of quasi-contractual arrangement with with departments where they would specify the goods and services that they wanted uh, to see. And then um, in 2020, we passed the Public Service Act, which... Uh, among other things, describes and codifies for the first time the purpose of the public service, its principles, its values, and uh, the spirit of service to the community that that is the foundational characteristic of the public service. Brilliant. Thank you. Admirably concise, taking us through uh, uh, more than a century. Uh, And it it may be too soon to tell, but the 2020 Act, have you, uh, we'll get into all of this obviously in a moment, but have you you noticed a difference already or uh, is is it too soon? 
Um, so it was passed in August of 2020, and and the past two years have been particularly unusual times. So it's hard to know what we can attribute to the mm. act and what we can attribute to the strange circumstances that, that we've lived in in that time. But one contrast I draw is in in 88 when the act was passed, uh, the State Sector Act, the act preceded the change. So overnight, there was an entirely different legislative foundation for the public service. And then over the coming years, the public service adapted to respond. The 2020 Act really confirmed and codified a, a path of change that we've been on for some time. So even though we can't necessarily attribute different behaviours and different practices to the 2020 Act, it's part of a continual journey that started in earnest really in, in about 2012 and only accelerated in the last five years or so. Really interesting. Thanks, Rodney. So to help us get into this, I'm going to suggest we cover three main themes over the course of the uh, uh, coming uh, half an hour or so. Firstly, cross-government coordination, then government stewardship, which is an interesting concept built into recent uh, and not so recent New Zealand uh, reforms. And then finally, accountability, a favourite subject at the IFG. So we'll, we'll kick off with with cross-government coordination, which is clearly one of the perennial problems that reform efforts uh, try to address in the UK, um, uh, between the set coordination between the centre of government, departments, different layers of government, different public uh, bodies, which is also a focus of the recent New Zealand reforms. Uh, and, and Rodney's, uh, as I said, written written the book about it. But first, Emma, we talk a lot about this in the UK. What are the, what are the headline problems uh, in, in Britain? Well, I mean, I think there are a whole range of kind of coordination problems. And as you say, it's been a kind of a, a perennial problem. Um, one is, of course, that the centre only has kind of limited power when it comes to coordination. Um, the kind of accountability mechanisms and the setups in the UK means that permanent secretaries, civil servants, and of course, ministers tend to be quite departmentally focused. Um, so no matter what the kind of priorities at the centre of government are, you know, you tend to see some deviation, um, varying kind of degrees of interest when it comes to actually acting on those priorities and implementing them. And I think one of the other problems um, has really been the kind of apparatus that we have to try and achieve uh, um, coordination across government. So we tried all sorts of different things um, from the kind of functional model, which we might get into in a bit of detail um, shortly. So, you know, reforming the kind of finance profession, project delivery, procurement and so on. Um, we've had kind of the policy coordination approach. So building special units to deal with particular policy issues that are a priority for the centre of government um, to creating kind of apparatus right in the centre, things like the prime minister's delivery unit or the strategy unit which tend to kind of come and go. Um, but each of those different um, kind of mechanisms have their own challenges um, and are often pushing against the kind of centre of gravity in terms of power and accountability. And are there particular examples of you know policies that have failed because of poor coordination or uh, areas where we're not as good as we should be in the UK? I mean, one of the examples that we've written about quite a lot recently is something like the Green Homes Grant, which I think is a really good example of why policy coordination can be so difficult to achieve. So, you know, the Green Homes Grant um, focused on providing financial help for energy efficiency improvements, improvements domestically, so to houses, basically. You know, totally consistent with one of government's headline priorities, net zero climate change, making progress in that space. But different departments interpreted this policy quite differently. Bayes, the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, really saw this as a means of progressing their energy efficiency agenda, an area that's been really difficult to make progress on. And they also saw it as, you know, being about creating jobs in the green space in the long term. The Treasury saw it as an opportunity to invest to create green jobs and green skills 
right now. They took very different things from this kind of headline central priority, which created all sorts of contradictions and implementation problems. And perhaps unsurprisingly, you know, the um, the scheme was wound down relatively quickly um, in kind of mid-2021. Okay, so it's a chronic problem of uh, British government policy. Rodney, has, has New Zealand sorted it? <laughs> It's funny. Every jurisdiction I've spoken to thinks that it's a unique <laughs> problem of their jurisdiction. There you go. There is um, within the public administration literature, it's described as the most common complaint across government. Um, it's described as the holy grail and philosopher's stone of public administration. <laughs> so no one's cracked it. Um, uh, really interesting, Emma, some of the, the examples that you gave of attempts to address coordination in the UK. Um, one of the things I reflect on is that New Zealand and the UK, despite the fact that we're going to mostly talk about differences, because that's the mm. interesting thing, this is about mutual learning, have a lot of things in common. And a lot of past reforms in New Zealand have influenced the UK and vice versa. And those examples you've given were ones that that we've looked at, that we've learned from, that we've uh, implemented in different ways. One of the things that is um, uh, characteristic of both the UK and New Zealand, but New Zealand to an even more ex- extreme extent, is the aversion to centralised rules. So some jurisdictions love setting rules uh, from the centre, and uh, that's great in terms of interoperability and consistency, and it has its own downsides as well in terms of flexibility and innovation. And New Zealand probably has the, or famously has the most uh, decentralised and the highest level of of autonomy for, for departments. When we think about coordination, and again, thinking about some of those examples that you mentioned, One of the things that we've been looking at in New Zealand is that actually it's not about what works, it's about what works when. Mm. So coordination describes a whole number of different problems and the calls for a whole number of different solutions depending on the context and what you're trying to achieve. And this actually comes up in the literature as well. There's perhaps thousands of studies now on horizontal coordination across government. Each one of them reports on a case study or a group of similar case studies and reports a number of these different success factors. Then every once in a while, there's a review article or an evidence synthesis. There's a famous one by Kerry and Crammond from about 2015 that compared hundreds of these studies and found out there was very little that was in common across them. Mm-hmm. Now, either you can draw from that that nothing works and we should just start from scratch or, or give up, or that actually each of these different cases are describing a different phenomenon. And so starting in 2017, we've been using what we refer to as the toolkit for shared problems. You can find it on the Public Service Commission website. Um, and it's an explicitly contingent framework. So it starts by asking what kind of problem are you solving? Is it a policy coordination problem, as you mentioned? Is it a back office administrative kind of problem? Is it a frontline service delivery problem? And then asks a series of other questions to help you navigate through a number of design choices. And we end up with 18 different uh, models. Um, whether 18 is the right number or those are indeed the right number of the UK is probably not the point. It's more that um, taking an explicitly contingent approach allowed us to more closely map uh, different solutions to different problem types. It's really interesting. And there's a uh, there's, there's definitely a question about the sort of mo- what mode you're operating in, in in different bits of government at different times. I think it's fascinating. But I just want to I want to pause a little bit on the sort of institutional architecture because um, be- before we uh, get into the, the the concepts a little bit more, I mentioned the beehive. That's the thing that you know government geeks always think about when they think about New Zealand, which is all the ministers together in one place, separate from their departments. Um, does does that help with coordination? It's a really good question, and and uh, does it help? Is one of those things that's really difficult to determine. 
with any sort of measurement or, or sense of causality. Um, certainly having ministers close to each other has some advantages and having um, ministers further apart from, from departments has both advantages and disadvantages because one of the side effects of putting all of the ministers in one building is that you can't put all of their departments mm. with them as well. Um, within that toolkit for shared problems, we also have some guidance for how ministers might like to coordinate themselves around some problems. Um, but ultimately, it's up to ministers themselves to determine how they, they want to operate. Mm. Yeah, I just think the issue of co-location is really interesting because obviously here in the UK, you know, that, that kind of co-location, given the size of, of our um, civil services, impossible but i do think there are some really interesting opportunities emerging for co-location through the government's leveling up agenda uh, you know the government's kind of desire to have a much stronger regional presence um for the civil service and uh, this feels like an opportunity when we're locating more roles outside of london to actually make co-location of civil servants working in different departments possible and um, so bringing you know civil servants who are working on one issue that is relevant across a whole range of departments together in the same space in regional offices to, you know, really try and achieve that kind of crossover. And I wonder also if actually, although uh, the current government doesn't seem too keen on it, uh, working from home also helps break down some of those kind of physical barriers to joint working mm -hmm. across departments. Yeah, I think it's really interesting in the, the Darlington campus that uh, uh, people in the UK are talking quite a lot about the Treasury and um, uh, uh, Department for Leveling Up and, uh, and others are co-locating together. But I guess it's still institutionally sticky, isn't it? There's, you, know, you, can, you can create one hub or one campus uh, that might help with one issue and it doesn't with, with another. But Rhys, you were going to come in. Yeah, I was wondering about the, the role of the Public Service Commissioner and how that's developed, particularly in, in regards to the sort of coordination that we're talking about and the instinct towards decentralisation in New Zealand. Does anything strike you as similar or different to the role of head of the civil service here in the UK? And we should just say uh, who and what the, the Public Service Commissioner is. <laughs> yes. So the Public Service Commissioner is um, the head of the public service. They are appointed by the Governor-General on the recommendation of the Prime Minister and in consultation with all parties represented in the House. So they must be scrupulously uh, politically neutral. Um, in effect, that that means that they have to be an acceptable candidate to, to all political parties. Um, the current Public Service Commissioner, Peter Hughes, um, likes to say that uh, even his family and his partner of 30 years uh, have no idea of his political leanings. Hmm. Um, and that would be the case for actually most or all uh, senior public servants in, the, mm -hmm. in New Zealand, um, that they are careful not to make their political leanings known. Um, the Public Service Commissioner appoints all of the chief executives, what here would be called the permanent secretaries, and also is responsible for judging their performance, so assessing their performance um, on behalf of the government. Um, that is entwined with some of the other things that we might talk about in accountability in terms of separating out exactly what mm -hmm. the responsibilities of chief executives are in order to then assess their appointment. Um, mm. He can either reappoint, uh, redeploy, or remove a chief executive. Um, he's also responsible for the integrity of the public service, so both in terms of setting standards but then also investigating um, any uh, allegations of breaches of those standards and then reporting independently through to Parliament um, through something called the State of the Public Service Report um, on uh, how the public service is performing, including in its integrity functions. I think what, what Reese was hinting at is the role of the Public Service Commissioner in, in the reform process and in coordinating the public service. And since 2014, the Public Service Commissioner has brought together a group of the chief executives called the Public Service Leadership Team, um, 
which was originally a retreat. So it was just they went away for two days uh, overnight just to, to get to know each other. And in that first meeting, in a, in a fit of inspiration, they um, took on themselves this role of collective stewards of the public service. And since then, have really formed this tight team bond where they do solve a lot of things collectively. So even though we have this highly decentralized and autonomous system, there are a number of things that need to be solved by collective action. And we can either specify that from the center with rules, or the chief executives can recognize that they need to come up with solutions together. They can get together as a group. They can delegate a leader from amongst them to go away and work up some solutions, have that person bring those solutions back, and then agree to it as a group. Now, there's no compulsion to the things that they agree to, but just that uh, sense of being honor bound through your participation in the public service uh, leadership team to follow through with uh, the commitments that you've made has actually been an incredibly strong lever. It's actually probably been stronger than some of the um, behaviors we've seen in response to, to hard and fast rules, where um, anyone who's worked in government for long would know that uh, just because a decision is made doesn't make it so. Uh, things that are agreed to by the public service leadership team tend to percolate their way down through the, the organizations mm -hmm. and tend to be followed very carefully. Really interesting. Thanks, Rodney. Uh, Emma, you, I'm going to ask the same question to Rodney in a, in a second, but you hinted earlier about sort of the size of um, the British public service and civil service. I mean, what, what's your take on just how useful these comparisons are, given that New Zealand is so much of a smaller country than, than the UK? Do you think, do you think it, how is it worth making these comparisons? Well, I mean, one of the one of the areas that I'd be really interested to test, you know, how far there is a crossover, is what the kind of, where the politics is in all this, and what the kind of politics of of these coordinate coordination mechanisms are. Because I think you're absolutely right, Rodney, that you know you need different coordination mechanisms for different problems. There's a big difference between a special unit that's trying to um, tackle rough sleeping versus a desire to reform, you know, government's approach to HR and have a consistent approach across departments. But I would say that one common feature we have found in the work in the UK is that for any of those mechanisms to be truly successful, it requires, you know, a kind of reasonable modicum of political commitment um, and political signalling for success, whether you know, that's some of our kind of highest performing special units like the Social Exclusion Unit um, back under New Labour or more recently the EU um, Operations Committee that had, you know, really kind of strong input from Michael Gove. And likewise, on some of the functional reforms, um, which have been most successful when there's been a kind of strong commitment from the centre of government. And at the moment, that feels a little bit wobbly. You know, on, on the one hand, government's signalled a kind of commitment to it, again, by Michael Gove and its declaration on government reform. But actually, more recently, some of their actions potentially starting to kind of rub up the wrong way against functional reform, whether that's, you know, potentially putting those functions further away from the prime minister if they water down the cabinet office or some of their signalling on working from home, potentially alienating some of the kind of key functions like digital or commercial. So I suppose my question is, you know, if you experience the same in New Zealand, do the kind of coordination mechanisms that you need still require that firm political signal or, um, or is there another way through for you? Good question. I think it's slightly different for different types of problems. Um, obviously, the public service is only there to implement the government's agenda. And so if it's not something that's a policy priority of the government, it's very unlikely to get off the ground. Having said that, there are, um, and possibly in contrast to the UK, there's more of an intentional distinction made about what are the responsibilities of ministers and what are the responsibilities of chief executives. Mm -hmm. And for certain things that are just about making the public service work better, 
those are the responsibilities of of chief executives and ministers through the cabinet manual are, are instructed not to get involved in day-to-day operations of departments and so in those situations chief executives just need to get on and with with solving some of those challenges and they don't actually require political input and they're not really political questions because they're not public policy questions that involve one um, policy choice or another yeah that's brilliant. Thanks, um, Emma and, and Rodney. And you've teed up a couple of the uh, the themes that we'll come back to in, in a moment. So I'm gonna I'm gonna move us on now to um, uh, stewardship, the second the second theme, and that that relates precisely, Rodney, to what you were just talking about. I, one of the parts of the 2020 Act that feels quite unusual to to UK ears is the principle of stewardship and a sort of sense of co- continuity of public service and uh, and the state over time, separate or distinct from. Uh, from uh, the government of the day. Uh, Rhys, first, we've just covered the critique of poor coordination. This is about sort of short-termism, isn't it? Yes, it absolutely is about short-termism. And like co- the cross-government coordination, this is another one of those forever problems in UK government and governments around the world. Um, we often talk about things like the treasury mindset or policies that are you know, uh, uh, sort of scoped out to have an immediate impact, but then may backfire in the long term. During the COVID period, we had debates around policies such as eat out to help out that might have you know, played a role in spurring business in the, in the short term, but had obvious uh, uh, negative consequences for public health in the long term. One of the uh, factors driving this is, of course, the influence of the parliamentary and electoral cycle that ministers are tended towards thinking about policy in parliamentary rhythms or even shorter, uh, uh, given the length of time they tend to stay in roles before reshuffles. But as you mentioned in the introduction to this section, the UK civil service's responsibility is rightly to the government of the day. It has no clear uh, uh, stated responsibility for managing the uh, capacity of government or the sort of long-term policy making for future governments. And that's, I think, why the principle of stewardship in the New Zealand reforms is so interesting and why it would be great to hear from you, Rodney, about uh, uh, sort of what that's looked like in practice and what difference that started to make or not since the 2020 reforms. And to put, put you on the spot, Reese, though, before we go to Rodney, uh, you described the system that, uh, uh, brilliantly. Should, should the UK have more of a sense of stewardship uh, embedded into its structures and, and governance? Well, certainly in our recent report on a new statutory role for the civil service, we argue <laughs> I that... I teed that one up. <laughs> we, uh, we argue that uh, giving the civil service a role in uh, thinking about and planning for the capacity of government and the implications of long-term policy uh, uh, in, in, our, in our argument within a, a statute would be one way to try to overcome those barriers to long-term policymaking. Um, obviously, the debate is how you square that with the democratic settlement of the UK system. Mm. And so, Rodney, is, is New, New Zealand a sort of technocratic state, a platonic ideal? Uh, or how, how's, that, um, how's that tension reconciled? I think it's a, a live debate in New Zealand. I think one thing to keep in mind is that we tend to think about public administration in the abstract as divorced from the cultural context in which it operates. Yeah. Um, stewardship has a really prominent position in New Zealand discourse in general. Uh, it's often associated with the Kopapa Māori concept of katiakitanga, which is often translated as guardianship or, or stewardship. Um, and as I understand, it has a much more long-term and intergenerational focus than we might think of stewardship mm-hmm. in a in a traditional English context. Um, so we talk about the gifts from our ancestors that we hold for our descendants. Um, the 
The background of stewardship in the New Zealand Public Service really dates back to decisions made in 1988, where ministers were conceived of having two different interests with respect to the public service. One was a purchase interest, that is, they would enter into annual quasi-contractual agreements on what they would, uh, what goods and services they would purchase. And the other was an ownership interest, which is that they would be responsible for the long-term health of the public institutions that, uh, for which they were responsible. Uh, one of the first ministers under the system was Simon Upton, who was a minister of health and of environment from about 1990 to 1999. And after that, he joined the OECD, where he talked a lot about the New Zealand model and what the world could learn from it. One of the things he reflected on was the difficulty and the barriers that ministers faced in discharging their ownership interests. And this became part of, of uh, public administration conversations in New Zealand uh, shortly after that. And so in the early 2000s, we saw a lot of focus on stewardship um, in various non-legislative ways becoming more and more prominent in different departments. So I was part of a directorate at the Ministry of the Environment called Stewardship during this time. Mm-hmm. Then in 2013, um, the State Sector Act was amended to introduce a responsibility for chief executives to support ministers with their stewardship obligations, um, uh, recognising that that ministers would find these things difficult, but that it was still very much the minister's prerogative to do. Then in 2020, uh, the Public Service Act added an additional duty, which is independent of ministers, is owed to the Public Service Commissioner to uh, to promote stewardship. So there's both responsibilities to support ministers with their stewardship obligations and a duty to um, ensure that themselves and the departments they lead uh, promote stewardship of the public institutions that they're responsible for. So that includes things like um, capacity and capability, uh, long-term institutional health, assets, including legislation that they're responsible for, and the capacity to deliver advice on topics that may be of interest to future governments. Thanks, Rodney. Emma, what's what's your take on stewardship? I think that that final point on the kind of capacity to deliver advice in the long term is really interesting and something that there have been a kind of number of approaches on in the UK. And I guess most recently I'm thinking of the fusion doctrine, which was a whole of government kind of integration approach that was first used in national security and that then Mark said, well, the then cabinet secretary tried to apply to other kind of priority issues that future governments might want to deliver against. And, you know, obviously a very laudable scheme in lots of ways, but I I think one of the insights from the attempt to create the kind of fusion doctrine across government is that success getting departments to kind of focus on the issues um, that the doctrine was trying to promulgate still required kind of firm political agreement. So, for instance, one of the strands that has had quite a lot of success was around net zero and climate change, which is an issue that has you know pretty strong cross party agreement overall in the UK, even if there are differences on the detail. Um, and so I guess I, I, I'm just wondering whether even when it comes to these kind of long term stewardship roles, to what extent can they really work without very active political consent? I, I think the other issue on, on long term is and that I just wanted to raise. And again, I'd be really interested on the kind of experience in New Zealand here is the question of turnover. And I think one of the things that can uh, kind of militate against uh, long-termism in the UK is how highly changeable our policy system is. And we have really high degrees of kind of turnover, even in very key policy areas, which can, I guess, act as a barrier to maintaining the institutional knowledge needed to focus on the long-term, but also just in terms of relationships can be quite problematic. People move on quickly, making it hard to build those those really deep relationships that kind of long-term joint working thrives on. So, yeah, very interested. We've made lots of kind of recommendations for how to 
you know, try and change uh, turnover and, and keep it lower, whether that's creating deeper career opportunities for people who want to anchor around one area or setting targets for reducing turnover in departments. But Rodney, really, really interested to hear whether that's a problem in New Zealand and, and if so, how you deal with it. We'll come to Rodney in a minute. But Rhys, first, you, you're going to say something about Wales. Yeah, well, I mean, the other thing sort of translation to a similar approach closer to home that, that struck me while you were talking, Rodney, is the in Wales we have the Future Generations Act and Commissioner, mm. which tries to capture that same sentiment about intergenerational responsibility that you were you started with. Um and it and it's it's another way of, of trying to kind of safeguard that resource within the Welsh government to ensure that long-term policymaking and consideration both of capacity and of policy substance is there. But to, to your point, Emma, it is also a model that relies on political sponsorship and has depended on it. So I think that's a very good point too. Rodney, turnover of civil servants and ministers a problem in New Zealand? Yeah, so let's let's start with Reese and I'll come back to Emma's, Emma's question. Um, one of the triggers for this idea of maintaining policy capability was a um, uh, ship that uh, ran aground called the Rena that caused a big environmental spill. And it was at a time when marine policy hadn't been at the forefront of New Zealand uh, environmental management for some time. And there was just a problem with just not the people around who knew about the topic well enough to, to manage this response. And since then, there have been several conversations that I'm aware, aware of where ministers have said, oh, that's not a priority for me at the moment. And a chief executive said, yes, I, I understand that, but I need to maintain a base level of knowledge in all of the areas that I might be responsible for in case either a future government or an event means that you do become interested in it. So I do know those conversations happen. As far as the, the turnover question, there's good turnover and there's bad turnover. Um, we uh, One of the things that the chief executives are responsible for with regard to stewardship is specifically the management of institutional knowledge and information. And without wishing to make this a plug for various books. Um, there's another, <laughs> we'll get there, we'll get there. <laughs> another book that I wrote in, in, in 2018 that, that talks about um, New Zealand's approach to the management of institutional memory. And one of the things that came up in that is that um, movement's great for sharing uh, insights and ideas across the public service. But also you need some of the old hands who, who retain the specific and subject uh, matter knowledge. And so intentionally constructing teams that include a mix of uh, experienced and and deep experts, as well as people with broad expertise who've moved around, seems to be one way of, of managing that. This idea that, that churn has... Um, uh, decreased institutional memory is one that's been made for a long time by Chris Pollitt and, and others. Um, we recently looked at some of the turnover stats and it seems like turnover probably increased in the early 90s as a result to oh, as a result of the, the uh, State Sector Act and the new public management era in different countries, actually, in Australia, the UK and New Zealand. But then since 2000, there hasn't really been a change that we've been sort of consistent with the amount of turnover that, we, that we've had year on year, and so have the other countries. Mm -hmm. So I think um, we're probably in a bit of a, a more stable period with regard to turnover, and it's just about making sure that that we manage um, turnover in a way that we don't see all of the knowledge from one subject matter area disappear at once, mm -hmm. and that we value some of those people who can act as good stewards for, for memory over time. It's really interesting. And that conversation you describe between a chief executive and a minister will, you know, really resonates, particularly, you know, we're all thinking about contingency planning and uh, things that we can learn from the uh, pandemic. That that strikes me as quite a sort of profound uh, insight uh, there, whether, whether the UK does have something to learn.
I'm going to move us on and uh, we'll pick up then the theme of accountability. Uh, and Rodney mentioned it uh, a moment ago, but uh, another of the sort of classic things that we hear about government in New Zealand is is how permanent secretaries or chief executives um, uh, have more separation from ministers. They'll turn up on the media, they have their own pers- public personalities, and that's in part at least because the accountability set up, as Rodney hinted at um, before, is different in, in New Zealand. I mean, Rodney, start with the sort of trivial. How does it feel for a civil servant uh, in, in government uh, seeing their, you know, their, their civil service boss turn up on television rather than a, a minister? Well, I think there's there's things that the civil service will talk about, and there's things that ministers will talk about, and the, we're we're very clear on what those things are. So, ministers can talk about government policy. Mm-hmm. Public servants can explain government policy, but we can't advocate for it one way or another. We can't say this is a good thing or a bad thing. And so, during COVID, you quite often saw these double acts. And in fact, in most topics, but I think in COVID it was particularly apparent where you'd have a minister or the prime minister present what the government's policy is, and then they'd hand over to a a public servant, often the Director General of Health, the Chief Executive of the Ministry of Health, who would then provide the data, um, you know, give the updates on things like case numbers and vaccination rates and things, and explain some of the technical detail, and then potentially hand back to the minister for another announcement that was about policy. And I'm not sure if the general public makes the distinction or is fully aware of why it is that one person's saying one thing or another person's saying another thing. But I do think there's a general sense that they can distinguish between the two. They can see that what the Director General of Health is doing is presenting the facts as, as best they see them with their professional judgment and using the information that's available to them and that that isn't politicised. And I think that potentially increases the trust in the information that's coming out of government. Hmm. And, and um, uh, one of the... Uh, there's, a, there's a very lively but not terribly fruitful debate happening in the UK at the moment about whether civil servants should work from home uh, or uh, the diversity programs that individual departments put in place. From I mean, from what, what it sounds like you're saying, that would be it would be sort of inconceivable for a minister to get involved in that in New Zealand. That's for the chief executive, um, or is it is it a bit murkier? Um, so parliamentary scrutiny is an important part of the democratic process, and you will have. Uh, questions go to ministers about those sorts of things and ministers will respond. It tends not to be uh, considered government policy. It tends to be something that the public service would be working on as to how to deploy the the resources available to them to achieve the government's agenda. So I know there have been questions about things like working from home policy, but in general, it's been managed by the the public service. Really interesting. Uh, Emma, what's your uh, take? Well, I wanted to come back to your first question, Alex, on you know how does it how does it feel for public services, public servants, sorry, to to be held accountable in this way? Because um, we've obviously had ch- quite a lot of changes um, in the UK in the last decade on how civil servants are held to account. In 2014, you know the rules changed on who gives evidence to select committees and senior responsible owners, um, senior civil servants who you know have kind of direct responsibility for some. Our biggest major projects became directly accountable to Parliament, even after they finished in role. Um, And that was very much a move that IFG welcomed at the time. We hoped it would create more robust discussions about, for instance, the deliverability of major projects. And I know that, you know, obviously more recently in some of your papers, Alex, we've argued that more senior civil servants should be directly accountable to Parliament um, and have to explain their decisions. But I think that it would be quite interesting to understand from SROs directly, senior responsible owners who have you know, been experiencing this change in, in who they're accountable to for, for some time. How much has parliamentary accountability 
change their behaviours or their understanding of their role? What does it feel like to them? Um, and I know that some of the kind of conversations that that I had um, with major project SRO suggest that they don't necessarily feel that direct relationship with Parliament has changed the way they feel accountable. And of course, the power relationship between ministers and civil servants continues to some extent to hold firm. But what it did do was change their relationship capital internally inside government. For instance, they felt more confident in drawing on um, non-executive directors and, and other senior figures to kind of speak up if they had major concerns about deliverability. Um, so I think, you know, there's a really interesting dynamic there where making uh, civil servants more accountable in some ways publicly or to parliament doesn't necessarily change things at the highest level, but it, it does change their behaviours and kind of capital um, in other ways. Rodney, how does that play out the sort of the uh, whether chief executive or responsible owner, uh, how, how accountable do they feel to parliament or to their minister? How does the how does the flow of accountability work? So there's formal accountability systems and legal accountability systems in which the minister is accountable to, sorry, the chief executive is accountable to the minister and the minister is accountable to parliament um, with some other uh, uh, special carve-outs for individual um, statutory roles. Um, what I think is more interesting, and this is where I, I draw on Bob Bain's work on accountability, where he talks about um, accountability is owed to everyone and by everyone. Outside of the formal and legal systems, chief executives and all public servants, uh, for, to that extent, are accountable to the public, um, as well as through the formal legal systems. So, chief executives through the through the media, um, and often directly through public participation processes, frontline service workers to the people that they are providing services to should feel a sense of accountability to those people that they're delivering for. One of the things that's hard to disentangle um, is relates directly to Emma's question about how does it feel different? And that's because I feel like we've been on slightly diverging paths for a long, long time. And the, decision, the changes haven't happened suddenly. And so it's actually hard to, to notice a difference. Mm. One of the things that has changed probably in the last five years or so is regard to accountability for mistakes. So government, like anything, makes mistakes. Um, there's been a real focus on chief executives usually fronting the media owning the mistake, explaining how they're going to fix it and explaining how they're going to learn from it and really taking that in a much more proactive and head-on way rather than than trying to either diminish or excuse what's happened. Um, and I think for a public servant, there's actually some some real pride in that, mm -hmm. that a sense that um, uh, we know things aren't always going to go well, but that we are responsible for for taking actions to make sure that we fix the things that are wrong. I, I just think it, this is really fascinating and I'd be fascinated to know how you feel that shift has occurred because I think in the UK there is a real issue around around blame and the kind of behaviours and incentives that creates in our accountability system, whether that's you know accountability to ministers, select committees, public inquiries, often a really avert focus on blame can sometimes you know, create the wrong incentives. People focus on trying to avoid censure rather than learning lessons or being transparent early on when things are going wrong. And I think sometimes we can see that in the sometimes defensive approach that can be taken, you know, in, in select committees or in giving evidence to public inquiries. So I'd be fascinated to hear more about how you feel kind of leaders in New Zealand have taken that step from rather than attempting to kind of avoid censure actually actively owning that but then being able to combine that with a really strong focus on lessons okay. 
I th- I would say it's probably been um, an an evolution and and comes from several different different parents, but I'd really point to the leadership of the current commissioner on this. Actually, he was the previously the uh, chief executive of the Ministry for Education, and when he took over education, there was a, an enormous scandal involving the uh, remuneration system for teachers that resulted in teachers not receiving their pay or receiving their pay incorrectly or their leave balances not being right, and he immediately on taking on the chief executive role, despite the fact that it clearly wasn't his fault in a causal sense, he'd just arrived, turning up to the media and saying, this is not acceptable. We're not saying that this is okay. We're not saying that, um, don't worry, it's only a few people or anything. This is not acceptable and we're going to fix it. And the public responded really well to it. They they said, okay, yes, we agree. It's not acceptable. But I'm glad to know that somebody is on the job and that this is going to be taken care of. And he's taken that approach since then and and it's been an approach that other chief, chief executives, I think, have learned from. Easy to do that when it's definitely not your fault, though, isn't it? <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it sounds. But like even a much when it approach. is, it's something yeah. that that um, we encourage and that um, that Peter's really let out on. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Reese, and then all the yeah. The, the other part of this there. accountability question that I'd be interested in your take on is is the uh, uh, unified public service approach that you mentioned at the start. So that process of setting out in one place the purpose, remit, values of the public service. It's something we've grappled with in the UK that we have the civil service code, which sets out standards of behaviour, but the civil service has never really had a, a sort of single definition mm-hmm. of its Good purpose point. and remit. Yeah. Has that affected the way accountability plays out in the New Zealand system? I think as far as the legislation goes, probably too early to tell. But as I pointed out earlier, it is part of an ongoing uh, trend towards that. And so we've been trying to, as much as possible, refer to the public service as a whole. Um even things like employment arrangements. In the 80s, we changed our employment arrangements so that, uh, so that chief executives have the powers and duties of an employer. So you're appointed to work for an agency rather than appointed to work for the public service. Uh, if you change departments, you have to resign from one department and apply for a new job, which is treated as entirely new employment at, a new, at another department. Um, we've been gradually trying to change those things. We've been trying to change... Uh, even the language that we use when you're appointed, you're appointed to the public service at the department of mm-hmm. now. Um, we bring the t- together all the leaders as, as a uh, leadership group. Um, so the top 600 public servants get together at something called the public service leadership group. Uh, we use similar language um, and try and use the same framing for things like values and ethics across the public service. So there's been a real effort to try and talk about those things in a more consistent way. And we were really inspired by by some of the social identity literature on this. Um, in the 80s, it was a really, intention, a really intentional change to build strong organizational cultures. And all of the psych literature would, would predict that that would create the kind of in-group, out-group behaviors that results in less coordination between departments. And arguably, that's some of what we saw. If you can create a situation where we all feel like we're part of the same team, oriented either around um, our mission or our identity as a group, then potentially you get more um, something called charity concern, which is making sure everybody gets what they need, and more uh, a better coordination of of resource use utilization. Mm. Thanks, Rodney. I'm going to draw things together. We could go on for much, much longer, but I'm going to draw things t- together in a moment. But there were two just just very quick questions. Listening to this discussion, uh, I wanted to ask Rodney and and, and Reese. I do chip in as well. Um, one is the question I asked earlier, but we didn't quite get to. Is on the size of New Zealand. I mean, the the, the other poster child for government reform is often Singapore, uh, and it does always strike me that it's very hard to make 
comparisons between a uh, city-state uh, uh, with a very different approach to democracy and the UK. Um, uh, how does how does the size make it you know hard or make comparisons worthwhile or, or otherwise, Rodney? I think sometimes public administration suffers from. Um, terminal uniqueness. Mm. That is, every country or every jurisdiction thinks that they're so special that they can't learn anything from yeah. anybody else. Um, Tony Bavard, the, the UK public administration uh, uh, academic, he said, um, it's often described as nothing works anywhere, and if it does, it's because they're weird. <laughs> so New Zealand's weird, Singapore's <laughs> weird, the UK's weird, everywhere's weird. Um, Embrace it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and we can learn things from countries that are similar size to us, and, and we do. There's a group of us that get together that are all in the sort of 3 million to 15 million sort of size range, um, and we learn from each other about things that are to do with size. And then there's the group of Westminster-style countries that learn from each other because they have similar institutional arrangements, and then there's groups that have similar policy problems that they're facing or um, cultural contexts that they're operating in. And so it's kind of this overlapping Venn diagram of similarity and difference that we can try to, to triangulate some ideas from engaging with other jurisdictions about. Um, one of the other th uh, things that we learn from the UK and that potentially the UK from, can learn from New Zealand is sometimes the best lessons are taken at a subnational level. Mm -hmm. So Greater Birmingham has a population that's very similar to that of New Zealand. And so the things that the Greater Birmingham Council are doing and the things that New Zealand are doing are often at a comparable scale. And sometimes it's at those subnational levels that we can make better comparisons. Really interesting. I can resist the temptation to dive into that because my last question was, uh, you did touch on this earlier when talking about stewardship, but New Zealand has a, a fascinating and it seems to be quite important approach to building in Maori history and culture into the way government works. Can you just say a, a bit about that for a, a moment or two? So New Zealand is founded on... Uh, a bicultural foundation. It's the one of the the key documents in the country's history is Te Tiriti o Waitangi, which is an, a treaty that was signed between five hundred uh, Maori chiefs and representatives of the crown in eighteen forty. Um, famously, there were two versions: one in English, one in Maori, and um, uh, different interpretations and uh, transgressions and disagreements about that ever since. And within uh, New Zealand, I suspect that a lot of people feel like we're um, only starting to consider and struggling to live up to the promise of partnership that is in that is within the treaty. And people who work in that area can find that quite challenging and and um, and discouraging. And then they engage with other countries that have uh, similar challenges with engaging with the indigenous people. And we think actually maybe we've got some things <laughs> that are that are exciting bedrocks that we can build upon. Um, Within the Public Service Act in 2020, and this is for the first time, um, the public service now has a legal responsibility to make sure that we build the capability to engage with Māori, um, to support the Crown and its relationships with Māori as treaty partners, and then also to engage with Māori communities. And I think that's a really important signal that um, uh, New Zealand is, is at its best when it's a partnership and when it is built on this bicultural foundation. Brilliant. Thank you, Ronnie. An ongoing conversation because there are lots of other things we might pick up on. But uh, that is it for this special edition of Inside Briefing. Huge thanks to Emma Norris, Reese Klein, and most of all to Rodney Scott. And thank you for listening at home. If you want to hear more about these topics, get a hold of Rodney's books. I promise the uh, plug. Rodney, what do you want to plug? 
uh, probably a few books that were mentioned today. Contingent Collaboration, uh, When to Use Which Models for Joined Up Government is coming up next month from Cambridge University Press and talks about that toolkit for shared problems and taking a more contingent approach to choosing different methods for coordination. Uh, another book called Targeting Commitment, Interagency Performance in New Zealand was released in March this year by Brookings Institution Press. And it talks about um, target setting and interagency coordination. And then the other one that I mentioned earlier is a book from 2018, again, published by Cambridge University Press, that's um, uh, about institutional memory in government. And the, I can't remember the actual title, but the subtitle is How Networked Government Remembers. Fantastic. And final plug, do subscribe for more of our podcasts, which can be found on iTunes, Spotify, and other major platforms. And don't forget to visit our website at www.instituteforgovernment.org.uk, where you can find um, uh, reports that we've touched on today and a lot more. And you'll also find the details of a range of interesting events we've got coming up on levelling up, devolution, COVID, and more. And of course, our regular podcast. See you then with our normal breakdown of everything that's happening in British government and politics. Have a great week.